one of the questions after suicide is always that why, you know, why? And if we can use that questioning to turn, to make us think more about what it is that makes us want to live and what are the things that define, you know, define life, a life for us and, and our meaning and our purpose and our truth in life. And, you know, I think that one of the ways that we can really do that better and, 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 and support people to do that in a better way is to embrace death more in, in our general conversation, um, you know, in, in our society and the way that we cope with death and deal with death and, and, and encouraging, you know, the, the one certainty in our lives is that we will all die and yet we all live like we're never going to die and then we're so unprepared for grief and, and yet we will all experience grief at some point in our lives as well um, and yet nobody wants to talk about it. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nish Nikolic, and today's guest is Tara Lau. She'll be talking about the ripple effect of suicide. This is an incredibly important topic, something that most of us have experienced in some way, shape, or form. And I think it's something that deserves a lot more conversation. Please share if you found this helpful and also to get the word out so that we can make a difference in preventing suicide, not only here in Australia, but right around the world. Tara, I wanted to say a big thank you for coming onto the show. Hi, Nesh. It's a pleasure to be here. So today's topic is the ripple effect of suicide. And I know that uh, from your background, you've got a lot of experience in terms of being a firefighter, a first responder, um, looking after team members in that sort of space. Um, I know that you've done quite a lot of research in, in mental health and, and, and suicide itself. Uh, you've got some lived experience in a book that you've released that we'll, I'm sure, touch on, on, on later as well. Uh, Tell me a little bit about, you know, what, 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 what's meant by this ripple effect and, and, and uh, you know, from your experience, I don't know, we're not sure where you want to tackle it to start off with, but uh, uh, what, where, where would you like to start? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the ripple effect, I think people are starting to talk more about, you know, the ripple effect of suicide and we might hear that. Um, and I guess my real passion is to try and, bring a sort of human side to that because often we hear about numbers and, and certainly in my research, my research is looking at the impact of suicide on firefighters. Um, and I guess my own story is really speaks to the ripple effect of suicide on my life throughout a period of really over 30 years now. Um, and that's kind of what brought me to where I am now and to my PhD looking at the impact of suicide on firefighters and because I am a firefighter and I have been a firefighter for 15 years. Um, and, you know, we talk about numbers in terms of the ripple effect. So we now know that for every single person that dies by suicide, up to 135 people are impacted by that death. Um, and when we look at global suicide estimates of, you know, over 800,000 people die by suicide uh, worldwide every year, um, that means that, you know, somewhere between uh, 48 and 500 million people are impacted by suicide every single year. And what we know is that people who are impacted by suicide uh, then are at greater risk of mental ill health themselves, of social isolation, um, and also of suicidal behaviour. Um, and so we know that how we support people after exposure to suicide is a really important part of our suicide prevention strategy as well. Um, and so my research is really looking at how can we better support people so to minimise the, uh, the ripple effect, really. Um, and that's where my, my research really looks at hearing people's stories. So trying to get the richness that we get from stories and, and actual people's lived experiences, um, rather than just to, to, to sort of highlight and illuminate some of those statistics. Um, and I think there's real value in that. Um, so that's really how I came to be where I am at now in terms of uh, my research and the work that I do. With such large numbers, uh, and obviously those that it affects, that 135 that you mentioned, um, uh, the, the, the size of the ripple. Why is this such a topic that's kind of still in the dark? Yeah. 
is is there still this fear around if we talk about it, you know, other people might go out and, and feel a need to do it or it being an option? Why, why are we still fearful of this? Is it just that it's a hard conversation to, to have or to talk about, that it's difficult for us to reconcile as human beings that a loved one can take their own life? I think that's a really, really good question. And I think there's many, many layers to that question. I think you're right in terms of there's a lot of fear and rightfully so in people think, you know, if, if I do speak about it, am I going to perhaps, you know, encourage someone to take their own life or what if I do it wrong sort of thing. So I think there's certainly that aspect to it, which, which is very real. Um, but I think also, you know, the media and, and how we report things in the media is very important and becoming educated. Um, so I guess how can we have safe conversation around suicide? Because there's still so much stigma around it. And, you know, when you look at, say, how much media campaigning goes into um, reducing the road toll um, every year, and yet we know that, you know, almost twice as many people die by suicide every year as die through um, motor vehicle accidents. And yet, if you look at the equivalence of, of how much advertising goes in around both of those, it's, it's very, very different. Um, so I think a lot of it is about educating people around how to have safe conversation around suicide. Um, and even historically, if you look back on, on our terminology around suicide and how we speak about suicide, you know, historically, it was a crime. Um, and in some places, it still is. Oh, and, and through, yeah. And, and that, oh, so when we talk... <laughs> yeah, and it was seen, you know, certainly religiously, it was seen as a sin if you look back through history and, and culturally. Um, oh, and certainly, you know, when, when my brother, you know, we talk about committing suicide, we still use that terminology that's very normal. But when we use that word commit, what, what does that denote? You know, and mm. it kind of denotes it as being a crime. And that really contributes to the stigma. Um, you know, around suicide and for people that have been bereaved by suicide, it is almost, you know, it, it has that connotation to it. Um, and so there's very much, you know, you combine that with some of the fear and there's a really um, strong sense of silencing around suicide and certainly something that I felt and that very much so my brother died by suicide over 30 years ago now, so in 1988. Um, you know, at that time to have his funeral in a church we had, to, we had to kind of fight to be allowed to have his funeral in the church because, you know, the, historically it was seen as a sin. Um, and so things like that and then, you know, add that to people's fear. So when, you know, I was grieving and I was grieving very, very intensely and, and death by suicide has a different flavour and texture to grief um, than perhaps other, other deaths do. And... You know, I wasn't, didn't feel that other people were able to, they had their own fear and they weren't able to hold that space for me so that I could express my grief in the way that I needed to. Um, and there was very much a sense of, you know, don't talk about it. You're not allowed to talk about it and you're certainly not given permission or a safe space to do that. And that really contributes to the silencing um, and, you know, through many years and much, a lot of work on myself to kind of be able to process that and in a way to realise that I was allowed to have a voice. Um, and that repressed grief, I think, contributes hugely to so many people's trauma who have been exposed or bereaved by suicide. Um, so I think there's so many layers to that question, but it's a really important question that we ask and we openly talk about. And I think the only way to facilitate that healthy conversation is to empower ourselves with knowledge, you know, and, and that I think comes to every person's responsibility to do that um, as to how, how can I have safe conversation around suicide and how can I potentially save a life through being able to do that? Is that what you mean by, or at least an aspect of it, safe versus unsafe conversation, the, the language of, you know, died by suicide versus committed suicide? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of subtlety in the language that we use and that it's very important that we 
think about the language that we use. And, and you know, I'm not, I, when I first wrote my book, it, I actually had that word commit suicide in there. And it's only through, um, you know, reprinting or republishing it um, five years later that I've been able to change that because of, you know, my own, the increase in my own knowledge. Um, so I certainly don't judge anybody for, for saying those words. And I think, you know, it's inherent and built into our society that we use that words, those words in that language. But by changing that subtly and, and taking responsibility for that, um, you know, we can actually affect change quite significantly. And, you know, in terms of affecting and reducing very slightly that ripple effect and certainly through society. So I think language um, is very, very important that we start to think about how we talk about suicide and the language that we do use. Mm. Are, there, are there things in your research and speaking with your uh, colleagues and peers or, or things that you've even learnt antidotally uh, through through supporting others that lean towards a, a safer conversation and, and what might be examples of uh, things that we might, I suppose, consider steering away from? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think especially, you know, looking at the media guidelines that are now, you know, the media are starting to realise that is really important. So important that we give people a space to express their emotions and their feelings, but we don't talk about the means by which someone uses to take their own life. And I think that that not focusing on that, not certainly not sort of glamorizing death. So, you know, we know that when a well-known person dies by suicide, there is a spike and a, a sort of contagion effect. Um, and so we need to not glamorize that death as someone that was so courageous, say, um, you know, and we need to actually more focus on people's, the reasons why somebody got to that point and how they were feeling and that there were other ways to cope with really intense and difficult emotion. And also to look at for people to really understand the impact on the people who are left behind. Um, and that can be really important. And I've certainly had many people who've read my book who've said to me, who have had, you know, suicidal thoughts or, or perhaps prior attempts, who have said to me, you know, thank you. It made me realise that I wanted to stay alive and I needed to find a way to stay alive because I just hadn't realised the impact that it would have on my family and my friends and my colleagues and on so many other people. So I think focusing on, on the impact that it has on people left behind, focusing on the fact that it is a crisis situation that you don't live with that feeling and that intense um, distress permanently it, it passes and there are ways to solve those problems because it, you know, it has been said that um, suicide is a way to try to solve the problem of intense psychological pain. And so encouraging people to realize that there are other ways to solve that problem than taking your own life. And, and so supporting people through that process obviously connecting them to help and focusing on how it is for them and what it is that gives the, their life meaning so you know in how do we reconnect that person to life and reconnect them to the things that give their life meaning and make them want to stay alive because really you know it's inherent in human nature to want to live it's just somehow in that moment there's a disconnect where, where you know, that is overcome for some reason or, or other. So how can we facilitate people to get them through that crisis point and support them beyond that to recovery and, and also to potentially to actually grow through their experiences? And, you know, certainly there are many people who have shared their own stories of um, surviving a suicide attempt who have then gone on to, to really actually grow through that and, and have deeper meaning and purpose and connection in their lives. What do the media guidelines say in terms of talking about suicide? I've, I've noticed, and I mean, I don't watch too much television, but, I, but I've noticed that uh, often when a uh, public figure uh, takes their life, it's not described that way. You know, it's kind of left as though you know, the person has died. Um, you know, it might say something like tragic circumstances or something, but but it doesn't actually say how they died. It's kind of left in a taboo space, you know, it kind of just says, oh, so-and-so was found in their apartment, you know, or something like that. Uh, and, you know, uh, most of us kind of join the dots or we think we join the dots and maybe yeah. we might have joined the dots early and it hasn't even happened that way. Uh, but we're kind of, you know, all, you know, turn to whoever we're watching television, we think, oh, yeah, you know, they've, you know, 
we probably use the word committed suicide. Um, uh, what 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 are the guidelines? Are they allowed to, to 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 talk about and just say you know this person was found? Maybe not talking about the means, but you know found in their mm. apartment, um, haven't having taken their own life. Can they? Do, do you know about that? Yeah, I mean it's very difficult because you know often um, you know as you said often that the media will say there were no suspicious circumstances um, and we're kind of left to join the dots. But the problem is that often you know for for a death to be actually classified as suicide, it has to be classified by the coroner, um, uh, and that okay. obviously takes you know six weeks or, or quite some time afterward to be definitively classified as a suicide. Um, and added to the fact that very often family members don't wish for the means of death to be um, openly released to the public. So they might ask that request that that, that, that suicide isn't mentioned. Um, so that combined with the fact that often we don't really know whether it is a suicide makes it very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I agree in that I think it's very difficult because I think it's important that we start to talk about suspected suicide because often that's where we, we might be at um, um, because we don't know for sure. Um, but I think that unknown of allowing people to just kind of make up, um, you know, make it up, you know, and sort of put two and two together that it was a suicide and then often they'll just put the lifeline number at the bottom and then you connect the dots. So I think we need to find a better way to openly express that um and i think you know educating the media about how to do that um but also being respectful of family members is is very important and it's Mm. a very very difficult and tricky line to um to tread um you know and i think but the the best that we can do is to try and educate the media um as much as possible um and obviously to be empathic and respectful whilst doing that because it's a really hard space and on the one hand we're we're asking for public awareness and to not make this taboo um, and, and on the other side where we're also saying let's not glamorize let, 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 let's not fuel this and make this you know interesting you know in particular for people who are in pain or younger persons who might be a bit more susceptible or you know whatever the contexts are it's a kind of a fine line but at the same time you know we don't want to leave it just open-ended and let everyone make up their own mind as well and you know it's grieving the grieving family behind that a ripple effect of you know 100 plus people it's, it's a it's a hard one it's a hard one if if, if you you know had 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 uh say in this how, how would you tackle some of this where do you think the next step forward would be uh that brings about awareness um uh, but you know maintain some of those you know important messaging still yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think you know, I teach mental health first aid and I think that if every single person in the general public and in the media, um, you know, and I have taught mental health first aid courses within the media industry um, and I think if, you know, if people were educated in a course like that, which covers, you know, lots of different mental health issues, but it also covers suicide um, and, you know, other mental health crises, that that would be a really, really good way to start. Um, and, you know, if we look on the mental health first aid course is built on the same uh, premise as the physical first aid course, you know, the two day course of like the St. John's Ambulance course that you might do. And it's built on the same premise. And I think, you know, if it had that universality about it, that, that we that what we were all just educated in that, it would set a really good starting point for understanding and for healthy conversation. Um, because a lot of what we do in that course is working groups around how do we have conversations with people around mental health issues. And, and certainly not, this is not to say that, you know, I think in some ways with regard to suicide, we probably focus too much on mental ill health and, and it's not just about mental ill health. Um, you know, it's about a lot of other things as well, sure. but certainly, you know, creating that conversation and, and, just allowing people to talk openly about it in that safe space because, you know, we're in a course with a, a trained facilitator um, to coordinate that um, and to educate people about the reasons why people take their own lives and that there are other options and those sorts of things. I think that would be a really, really good place to start because then you're in a better place to then, you know, just have a general conversation perhaps with your friends when you're out you know, having coffee or something. Um, and, and that kind of subtle ripple effect of reframing that conversation uh, from a healthy perspective, I think is a really, really good start. Something that jumps out for me is 
very early in my, in, in my well, I can't even say career, I was actually uh, mainly studying and working just a little bit, but I went to an, an assist program uh, or course mm. uh, and just the power of, uh, I remember you know, sitting in the room, uh, every, every, every participant was asked to ensure they say out aloud, you know, are you thinking about killing yourself? Or are you thinking about suicide? It, it had to be very clear. It had to be very black and white. Yeah. That there couldn't be any ambiguity. And just the power of that. And, and and watching the room, some people were awfully challenged by being so direct, and others found that a little bit easier. But it was a very powerful moment for 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 me uh, to to have that on the agenda, and that everyone could just talk about it. And um, it, it took away the uh, the great angst and, and, and you know, to role play it was was incredible because I've had to ask that question um, you know, many a time uh, personally. Um, you know, obviously, my in my work all the time, but uh, personally, I've had to ask you know, that, that many a time with loved ones, um, uh, and it's a powerful, powerful question. It is absolutely, and I you know I completely agree with you. I I did the same course. Um, and, you know, I found it to be, I did the mental health first aid course first, and then I did the assist course and the mental health first aid touches on it in, in just a short, um, you know, a very shortened version. Um, and exactly that, how do you ask that question? And then the assist course really, really builds on that. And I really encourage anybody to take that course because I think it has empowered, you know, I've been a firefighter for over 15 years and I've certainly contributed to saving more people's lives through having that conversation and asking that question than I have through putting them out of fires or out of cars. Um, so I think it's such an important question to ask. And like you said, when you hear yourself say it, it's so confronting. And, you know, what I always try to teach people is say, well, you know, if how much of that is about our own fear um, of asking that question and, and not feeling, you know, um, equipped to answer it as well. And so, we you know, one of the things that I think, you know, we try to find ways to not quite ask that question quite so directly because it feels more comfortable for us. Um, but also encouraging, you know, so you wouldn't, you wouldn't do anything stupid, would you? Or you're not going to hurt yourself, are you? You know, and I think many times people will try to frame it that way, but really that's about what feels more comfortable for them. Um, and I think, but we need to, as you say, ask that very direct, unambiguous question, are you having thoughts of suicide or are you thinking about killing yourself? And it's a very difficult question to ask, but a lot of that I think comes from our own fear and, you know, recognize that in ourselves is really important way to break down some of that stigma and, and people know straight away if you're genuine and caring. Um, and I think the only way to become more comfortable with asking that question is to, is to find out more and to know more and know what to do if somebody says yes. Um, and that's really what the assist course um, and the mental health first aid teaches people is what do I do if someone says yes but you know actually just by asking that question and allowing someone then to express them themselves themselves and their own story really give them a safe space to tell you their story um, and that in itself without you even doing anything um, is incredibly powerful in how it helps people to feel heard and I've had many people, you know, when I was writing my book, I'd be writing and people would say, oh, what are you writing about? And I'd say, well, I'm writing about my brother who died by suicide. And they'd go, they'd stop for a moment. And then they'd go, you know what, I've thought about it. And then they would tell that would open the space up for them to tell me about their story. And then they would say, thank you so much. I feel so much better. Um, and, and it's the same with my research now, speaking with firefighters. You know, I don't, my job really is to say as little as possible and just to hear their stories. And at the end, I say, you know, what's been your experience of taking part? And they say, thank you. Um, it's been so good to talk about it. And I think, you know, one of the things is we're never given a space to talk about suicide in particular, um, but certainly many of the traumatic experiences and difficult challenges we have, but in particular suicide, we're never given a space to talk about it. And that process of talking about it openly without judgment really does help people to process it in a way without you actually even saying anything. So it's often not about having that academic skill, uh, skill set. And that's what I realized, you know, I always thought, oh, I have to be a mental, I'm not a mental health professional. I'm not a psychologist. So how can I ever help anyone? But what I realized is it's just 
really about having genuine empathy and caring and knowing what to do if someone says yes and then being able to connect them to professional help but for them to get help you you know often they're not going to go and see a mental health professional in the first instance or many people won't so then you need to be the connector and we all have the power to do that and and then to potentially save somebody's life i imagine many people listening to this uh, would be thinking but what would i do then if I ask that question, what, what what do I do then, as you alluded to? And most of our listeners probably won't go out and do a mental health uh, first aid or even the assist course. Uh, what does someone do after they put that question out there? I mean, obviously, I think the idea of, you know, what do I do then is, is more of an anxious fear rather than it is a uh, an actual response of saying, you know, I actually wouldn't know what to do. Uh, but what what would you say to someone uh, who, who might pose that question of you know what do I do then? You know what what happens if someone does yeah. say yes? Yeah, I mean the, really the. Um you would effectively there's a few other questions that you would then ask to try and assess the urgency of that risk if you like so what we know is if someone has a plan uh, has thought about how and where and when they might take their own lives then and that you ask them that did they have a plan um, have they thought about when where and how um, you know then and if they say yes to all of those then really it's really important that you stay with them um, and you get support professional help straight away and whether that is you know so knowing even if you just know okay there's the lifeline number there's a suicide callback service there's a mental health crisis team or maybe I just drive them to the emergency department at the hospital um, or, or call triple zero if, if you need to um, you know so there's knowing kind of what to do or to assess the urgency of that risk um, we know that if someone's made a prior attempt that increases the the level of risk and we know that if somebody's been using alcohol um, or other drugs, that that also increases the risk. So you want to know all of those things to assess the urgency of the risk. And then you really want to make sure that you link someone to professional help. So having some idea about what professional help is there um, that I can connect that person to and how do I keep them safe for now, um, knowing that we can't guarantee that we're going to be able to keep somebody safe forever. And I think that's really important that people realise that you can do everything you possibly can and, and you might not be able to save that person's life. So it's important to be kind and compassionate to ourselves, I think, you know, with the level of knowledge and awareness that we have at that time. Um, and certainly I had to learn that um, from my own experiences that I could only go with the knowledge and awareness I had at that time. And, and obviously now I have a lot more than I, I did have, you know, in the past, um, but that's the same for everybody. Um, you know, even things like there's um, a suicide safety planning app called the Beyond Now app through Beyond Blue, which you can download on your phone and you can sit with someone and go, hey, why don't we download this app? And it, it takes you through how to make a safety plan with someone so that you don't have, the onus isn't on you if you don't have that level of knowledge and awareness, which you may well not have. Um, so there's all sorts of resources and things out there. Or do you call the suicide callback service with that person there with their consent um, and say, or call them for yourselves and go, I don't know what to do this person has said that they're thinking about taking their own lives, what do I do? So empowering yourself with what number you can call, whether it's the Beyond Blue support line or the or Lifeline or the Suicide Callback Service to go, help, can you help me with how to help this person in this situation? And somebody will talk you through that. Um, and that in itself, you know, taking ownership of that um, is really, really important place to start, I think. So it's important for everyone to understand that they are supported as being a supporter as well, that there are plenty of places yeah. that they can contact uh, should they find themselves in that position and feel a little bit overwhelmed or out of their depth as well. Yeah, absolutely. So important. And I mean, why, you know, unless you really work in that space, why would you have that knowledge? You, you, we wouldn't, most of us wouldn't, as you say. And, um, you know, but I think the only thing that we can do is go, but hey, I can call, say, the Beyond Blue support line. Um, and say, I don't know what to do. And that's a really, um, you know, and, and having somebody, a mental health professional to talk you through that um, is so helpful. And, it, and it's such an incredible kind of learning experience as well to also, I think, reduce that ripple effect by, um, you know, actually trying to, you know, having someone talk you through that process who is a, who is a professional um, in itself. But, um, you know, it, it's a very difficult conversation to have. Mm. 
can you maybe talk us a little bit through your own lived experience, if that's okay? I know that uh, on your website you you wrote uh, in particular some of your feelings. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll just share uh, share some of that. It says I I felt helpless, rejected, abandoned, and ashamed. I struggled. I ran and I shrank. Eventually, I grew. Um, uh, can you talk us a little bit about your your experience as a uh, human being, as a sibling, um, uh, and how how your your brother's passing affected you? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, with as with everybody, my my whole life experience really was many different things. Um, so my father, I grew up, my father had long-term mental health issues throughout my life and was hospitalised um, uh, at various points throughout my childhood. Um, he suffered from major depression and then later on from bipolar disorder. Um, and my mother was diagnosed with cancer when I was eight. Um, and she died when I was 13. Um, and my father had quite a significant psychotic episode at that time and was hospitalised for, for most part of a year. So really from when I was 13, um, my brother was 15 and my sister was 17 at that time. Um, and we didn't really have a, a parent around um, and I guess not didn't have the emotional maturity to even know how to grieve. And I sort of hoped that we'd all somehow unite in our grief. Um, but we didn't. We all kind of coped in our own way and it was quite isolating, really. Um, and I became very, very close to my brother. Um, he was the person that I looked to when the world didn't really feel like a safe place uh, anymore. Um, and obviously not having a father around and having lost our mother, um, I really turned to him and he really cradled some of the pain that I felt at that time. And we had a really special, unique, caring bond. And, and he was very charismatic and tall, dark and handsome and all the girls loved him and, and they wanted to be with him and all the boys wanted to be like him. Um, and he was a straight A student and, and good at athletics and, you know, everything that we all kind of aspire to be and to want in the world, you know, that was him. Um, and he had quite a quirky sense of humour as well. Um, and I don't know at what point he started to change. Um, he finished school and he got all A's and he got a place to study at Oxford University and he took a gap year. Um, and I remember starting to realise that there was, you know, he wasn't quite the same person that he was and there was something wrong. He, he sort of had a moment when he kicked a tree and we were kind of joking and laughing that he'd kicked this tree. Um, but I didn't really understand. He went to India, he came back and when he came back, he had this very blank sort of sense about him. Like, like I couldn't quite reach him and I wanted so desperately to kind of reach him and he, did, he didn't feel like he was there, which was very much what my father had felt like when I was growing up. And I had this awful sense of kind of impending doom, but I, I suicide never, never even crossed my mind at that point. Um, and then in his first year, uh, first term at Oxford University, so he'd just turned 20 years old, um, he took his own life. And at that point, you know, my life really fell apart. Everything that I knew and loved in the world had been taken from me. Um, and it just, my whole sense of trust and safety in the world shattered and, I wrote to a friend of mine, it was interesting, she gave me the letter back to me um, a, a few years ago and said, oh, I just thought you should have this. And in it, I'd written to her, I don't want to die, but I don't know how to live. And I think that was, when I read those words, I went, that was exactly how it, how it felt. Um, you know, and there were so many layers of all, all these different things, um, you know, the, the, the things that you've mentioned there. So I started having panic attacks and I'd never had a panic attack before. And, and I would feel like I, I couldn't breathe and, and um, I would start sweating and my heart rate would go up. And most frightening for me, I would feel like I wasn't really in the world. And to me, that that was frightening because I thought maybe I would become like my father or maybe I would do what my brother had done. Um, and I had a huge sense of shame that really stayed with me for many, many, many years that I wasn't enough and I hadn't been enough to save my brother or my mother or my father, really. Um, and so it had a deep impact on my sense of self-worth. Um, and I think, you know, that sense of helplessness of I couldn't do anything, I couldn't save him. And I think that drove me to many things, you know, to, you know, becoming a surf lifesaver, becoming a firefighter, becoming a physiotherapist, anything to really save people, because that was how I defined my own sense of self-worth, that I hadn't been able to save him, but I could save other people. So it certainly dictated many of the choices and decisions I made in my life. 
Um, and that sense of rejection, you know, and I couldn't understand, I didn't realise for many years why I seemed to have this sort of super sensitised um, I was super sensitized to rejection and, you know, some tiny little rejection and I would have this massively amplified reaction and I couldn't understand it until a, a friend of mine said, you know, that she felt that suicide was the ultimate rejection of her love. Um, and I went, yes, you know, for me, it meant that I, my love wasn't enough to keep my brother alive and all of those things, how they play out in your life, you know, how can you have a healthy relationship when you don't think your love is enough? How can you have a healthy relationship when you don't love yourself? In fact, you're crucifying yourself for not being able to save the, your family. Um, and, you know, I very, I very much realise now that the cost of all of those things that happened for me was that, you know, I didn't get married and have children and do the things that I really wanted to in my life, you know, or certainly that I wanted to, you know, in earlier years. Um, and it's only in the last kind of 10 years that I've really come to to actually be the person I want to be and, and to have the life that I want. And that took a lot of work to be able to address all of those things that my brother's death and my mother's death and my father's illness, but especially my brother's death and, and the things that go with suicide, um, you know, and the blame and the anger, you know, I was so angry, but I didn't want to think that I was angry. So I kind of pushed it all down and pushed it away. And, and finding that sense of anger was, was almost one of the hardest things for me to find was to be in touch with that anger and be okay to have the anger. Um, whereas I just thought I could only, you know, I idolized my brother and he was perfect. And I really dissociated him from all sense or talk of suicide. Um, and I sort of almost split my life really into the sort of 15 years of turning turning away from everything everything that happened and and all the things that were going on inside me and then the last 15 or 17 years of turning towards and I think that turning towards is what's actually enabled me to find my strength now and to become the person that I am and the person that I wanted to be and without feeling like I was just suffocating and constrained under all these layers of things that I'd created around myself. Um, and I had to work very hard to free myself of all of those things to be able to have the life that I wanted to have. What were you angry about? I think I was, you know, I was angry with my brother and I didn't want, but I didn't want to accept that because I thought that I couldn't love him and be angry with him. And so I very much tried to siphon that anger off to other people um, and blaming them in a way for his death um, rather than to look to him. And, and uh, you know, part of what I sort of had to do to heal myself it really was to write letters to him and have a dialogue with him about, you know, how he had let me down um, and that I could be angry with him and still love him. And, and that was a very difficult thing to kind of marry the two together in a way that sat comfortably for me. Hmm. Are you still angry? No, I, it's, um, am I still angry? No, not, not with, with him. I, I, am I? That's, that's a really interesting question. I think, no, I think I've made peace with that. Um, I, I don't have that intent. You know, I certainly have things that now um, that might make me angry and might tap into some of that old stuff um, around my brother and, and losing him and the choices that he made. Um, but it, it feels much more um, at peace and, and at rest. And I guess I, I often talk now about my, you know, how I still hold the wounds that all of my life experiences have left me with. Um, and I wanted to rid myself of them and kind of just, you know, think I'll be fixed one day and it'll be over and, and then I'll be better. Um, and now I think I still hold those wounds, but I hold them much more gently. And so mm. everything feels much more soft. Um, yeah, it feels more it feels kinder uh, on myself than, uh, than it used to be. But, but anger was certainly one of the things that I found most difficult to kind of um, to express or to even feel um, and to realize that I did feel angry. I didn't, didn't even realize that I did, to be honest, and um, for, for a long time. And I kind of had to dig and dig and dig very deep with, you know, with the support of a very good therapist to, to be able to identify that. And that, you know, that actually I could use that anger 
as a strength to guide me in the things that I, I wanted and that I didn't want. Um, and that that was, you know, that there was a healthy way to have anger and that anger was actually important to have, but it's what you do with it that matters. It's such a hard thing to, to grapple with. There's, you know, on, on the one side, we, we talk about choice, you know, and, and, and that there is a choice for one to take their life. And there's also choice to wait till tomorrow or next week or to, to, to seek support. And on, on the other hand, where from a human level, particularly for our loved ones, you know, it's so much easier as a psychologist to talk about choice, but if it's a loved one, you're like, well, I don't want there to be choice. I, I don't want my loved ones, not, not, not here, you know. Uh, I, I can't see that as a choice for the people I love. It, it can't be. It's going to hurt too much, you know. Um, it's so hard to grapple. It is. It, it's incredibly difficult. And I think perhaps, you know, that's part of the problem. I think that we do perceive it as a choice. And I think really it's not necessarily a choice because most people don't want to die. They're not choosing to die. They're mm. just wanting mm. to end their pain. And that's a very mm. different thing. So I think in a way it's getting our head around the fact that it's not making, for most people anyway, the vast majority of people, it's not making an active choice to, to die. It's saying, I just want my pain to stop and I don't know what else to do. And, you know, I, I, I can't live with this amount of distress and pain anymore. And this is the only way that I can find to stop my pain. Mm. So I think that's very different. And it's, I think, you know, very different to sort of thinking of it in terms of, of a choice to die, which, which, you know, I think is, is, is natural because, you know, in a way, well, you know, for the coroner to define a death as suicide, they have to um, show that there was an intentional act to end life. Um, so in a way, the way that we classify it kind of, you know, potentiates that. But, but really, I think if you look, deeper at you know psychological distress and and the reasons why people take their own life it, it's not it's not about wanting to die mm, it's mm. about wanting to stop the pain mm. i've uh i've heard it described that way many many a time in actual fact that's that that's how psychology looks at it in in terms of uh it's it's um uh, a way that comes to mind about trying to end pain uh, uh, and, you know, uh, part, of, part of our job is to, to try and support someone and suspend uh, judgment of that but, but assist someone to, to be able to kind of be in that space for a little bit longer until maybe they find another space where it's a little bit more bearable. Um, and and, and we, we know that our mind will change uh, over time. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's one, one thing we're certain for, uh, certain of. Um, and it's just about being able to support, um, maybe I shouldn't use the word just, my apologies. Uh, it's really important to support people to get through those those times. And that's what you're talking about. Can I just jump on something that uh, you you spoke about a little bit before that I wanted to, to uh, go back to? Uh, you used the word reframing um, you know, in, in talking about suicide uh, in, in, in how we relate to it and you know we spoke about it in in terms of uh, you know e even how the the media uh, go about their, their their work and i know part of something that you're passionate about is is looking at suicide differently what what do you hope that that your work in reframing uh suicide does what what are your hopes for the future in, in, in the way that the community can can look at this um, uh, as a uh, as a means of not only change, then kind of behaviour change? What, what what do you hope would come from that reframing? Um, I think, you know, I think it's very much about when I talk about reframing, it's about looking at you know what what one of the questions after suicide is always that why you know, why? And if we can use that questioning to turn, to make us think more about what it is that makes us want to live and what are the things that define, you know, define life, a life for us and, and our meaning and our purpose and our truth in life. And, you know, I think that one of the ways that we can really do that 
better and, 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 and support people to do that in a better way is to embrace death more in, in our general conversation, um, you know, in, in our society and the way that we cope with death and deal with death and, and, and encouraging, you know, the, the one certainty in our lives is that we will all die and yet we all live like we're never going to die and then we're so unprepared for grief and, and yet we will all experience grief at some point in our lives as well um, and yet nobody wants to talk about it. And I think that conversation, that more general, broader conversation about death and how we, you know, different cultures do it differently and they do it so much better than we do, I think, um, in terms of recognising, you know, the uh, Mexico, they have the National Day of, uh, of, of the Dead and, and where people acknowledge people that they've lost and people that have died and the importance of that and what they meant to them and all of those things. And I think that that would be really helpful for us and, and to think about, you know, in, in the context of... Um, suicide you know we talk about resilience and we so often we talk so much about resilience which which is great but if you look at all the things that build resilience they're also the things that when we don't have will contribute to people taking their own lives and yet we hold them in two completely different conversations and i sort of think well shouldn't this all be part of the same conversation really in terms of we're actually but we just want to talk always about the positive and i think actually it's about helping people to, I guess, look into the darkness and the darker side, look, look into those difficult conversations about death and about suicide and about what it means to live. And we know that, you know, giving people or pe helping people to find their meaning and purpose is really protective and it helps to keep people safe. So what can we teach people? Um, what can we learn from suicide that can help us in terms of finding those things that make us want to stay alive and that add value to our lives. And a lot of those things are the things that we talk about in terms of resilience, um, but we don't have them in the same conversation. Um, so I guess, does that answer your question? I'm sorry, probably gone mm -hmm. a little bit off, off topic, but um, yeah, does that answer no, no, your question? It makes, it, 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 it makes a lot of sense. And in so many ways it ties back into uh, some of the training and understanding around suicidality uh, around acknowledging and validating the dark side, the pain, the suffering, the hurt uh, that we all experience as human beings. And, and there are certainly times when it feels immensely unbearable and that'll never end. What you're saying is, can we add to that same conversation uh, some purpose and meaning? What is it that, that, that is keeping someone uh, alive or connected what, what what are the things that they are staying alive for um, you know what what's that that juice even if it might only be a small glimmer um, uh, or it could be you know a, a glimmer in the future what's you know who and what's important and trying to connect the two rather than trying to run away you know part of the big problem with I think mental health is is we keep talking about it as though negativity is bad you know that, that that all yeah. feelings, all, all negative feelings are bad. They're to be, you know, gotten rid of versus you're, you're kind of saying, let's take a deep dive and exploration into the dark side and, and, and talk about it, not something to fear and, you know, maybe not even to get rid of, but rather to explore and be curious and, and, and have a conversation around and likewise doing that with the, with the other side um, at the moment. It's almost like in our language, you know, uh, uh, mental health is, is, is anything other than I'm feeling great and good is bad. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. And I think there's that, that word resilience has really been kind of misused, not misused, but it's been used so freely that, you know, people interpret the way people interpret the meaning of the word resilience is, well, I'm strong and I just don't feel these negative, difficult emotions. Um, and I know that's not the, the actual meaning behind resilience, but that's how many people, so in our, even in our language again and how we interpret things, it kind of has been very much, um, I don't know whether it's been bent over time, but, but it's seen as, you know, almost not, not experiencing those difficult emotions and not embracing them. And I think there's so much that we can learn through that. And, you know, even on, the, you know, but there's so much of a focus on, on mental ill health and suicide and the connection. And although obviously, you know, the a vast majority of people who take their own lives do have an underlying mental health condition, but equally, we know that things like having connected, authentic, authentic, close relationships with people 
helps to keep people safe and is fundamental to, to human well-being. And yet, do we invest in teaching people how to have healthy relationships? And, and you know, we put so much focus on that primary relationship, um, you know, but actually, I think it's about so much more than that. It's about having healthy, quality relationships with several people in our lives. And, you know, and that is really, really important. But I don't think we teach people how to do that. And, and especially probably for men in particular, um, you know, how, how do we actually have a healthy relationship with a mate with a friend with a colleague um you know where we can express how we feel and and we can actually authentically you know we're able to say actually there's this stuff going on inside me that's a bit scary and I don't really know what it means but hey I can talk about it with you and I think we don't teach people how to do that and and many men I know in my research you know they just don't know how to even do that and so, and certainly, you know, we're also not taught to have to really necessarily nurture and put effort into maintaining those relationships and the quality of those relationships. So I think that that quality of the relationships that we have with the people around us is really undervalued in how important it is in keeping people safe and well, you know, in terms of mental well-being, but certainly, you know, in terms of suicide as well. Do you have any under, understanding as to why there is a disparity between, um, uh, uh, I'm, 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 let, me, let me rephrase that. Uh, we understand that men account for more um, completion of suicide, if I can call, call it that, um, uh, in, in terms of the, the means that they use are ones that you generally cannot come back from. Um, uh, uh, and females, uh, often choose means in which if you intervene early enough or, or soon enough, uh, could potentially be, be reversed. Uh, but is there something about how, uh, how men deal with these feelings that is different to how our females? Is it this connectedness? Is it, is it having more avenues to talk to? Do you know what the research is saying? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really interesting question. And it's a complex question. You know, there's some really interesting research um, around cultural scripts, um, and, and gender, you know, through through history as, as to how we define so, you know, historically, often when male suicides were portrayed, it would be seen as a, you know, courageous act and an act of power and, and a way to um, avoid shame, whereas for females, it's very different. Um, so there are all sorts of things that I think impact the fact that, you know, and what's also interesting is that although in our society and in, in many Western countries, or vast majority of them, you know, three times as many men take their own lives as women, um, but more women attempt suicide than men. But what we also know is that that's not, there are certain countries, so there's five countries in which more women um, take their own lives than men. So it's not an inherent, you know, um, genetic predisposition that men have, say. Um, it, it's not is there a reasoning? A, a, is there a reasoning that's offered for in the cultures where the women? Because uh, that I've never even heard of that. It's really interesting. I mean, I think, and that's where I think our culture, you know, has, has a lot to do with that. So Pakistan is one of those countries. So whether it's to do with, um, you know, I don't know. Um, I don't know, but I think you know how we, um, how men and women. Um, and gender differences in our society um, and how we view um, men and women and yeah, there's so many so, there's so many it's so complex um, but I think we need to we feel somewhat limited by looking at um, by you know our biomedical model is so much focused on on mental illness that I think we need to start to look a bit more broadly um, and look more broadly at um, you know, our culture and how and cultural scripts around how we define men and women and, you know, that it's okay for women to ask for help um, and that how do we portray male suicide and female suicide and how is it different? Um, and, you know, does that then influence the means by which men and women choose to try to take their own lives? Um, uh, and that, you know, as we said, we know that more men... Um, 
do die by suicide, certainly in Australia and America and in the UK and most of Europe as well. Um, so it, it's an incredibly complex question and we don't, we don't really know the answer to that, but I think we certainly need to look beyond just that model of, of mental ill health because we know that more women suffer from um, mental illness than men as well. And yet more men take their own lives. So there's a lot at play. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting also to think about it. You know, uh, quite often we talk about mental health and, and suicide uh, as being very much connected, which clearly um, uh, uh, I think is, is easily adopted as a position. But it's interesting that we don't call the human condition uh, just being human and context uh, a mental health uh, 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 um, difficulty. We we kind of go out and say this: if someone has gone out and, and, and suicided, there must have been a mental health issue, versus potentially saying someone was just in extreme pain. I mean, the, 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 this yeah. conversation about pain and why people are going out and, and uh, 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 you know, resorting to, to to these you know uh, permanent measures, which is you know awful and painful and hard. Um, uh, but we, we end up then categorising it as a mental health issue rather than it's very, very difficult, for example, yeah. if someone loses a, a primary relationship. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's about, I think it can be quite um, unhelpful, the fact that we, do, we focus so much on mental illness because, you know, the vast majority of people who have a, a mental health condition don't take their own lives. So there's so much more at play, you know, um, and, you know, people, we talk often about suicide as death by loneliness. And I think that that's a really important thing to acknowledge mm. that that sense of loneliness of I'm alone and I don't belong. And, you know, we know that that is really, really um, a, a, such a significant part of people who, who do take their own lives is, is, is that sense of I don't belong and I'm alone. Um, and also that I'm a burden on those around me. So that social connectedness and like going back to that relational thing of, of, of the relationships we have with other people, um, you know, I think we need to really start to look at that and, and what is it that makes people lonely? And, and how can we reduce that sense of loneliness? And, and in our suicide prevention strategies, looking at that sense of community and connectedness and as a, as a way to prevent suicide beyond just, you know, mental Ill health and mental illness. That's a beautiful way to reframe it. Can you still hear me? Yes, I can. Yes, oh, my, my you're mic, a bit echoey. My mic's just moved across. I'll, I'll try and mic it up in a, in a minute again. But uh, it's a beautiful way to reframe this, that it's death by loneliness, because loneliness is that disconnected space that, uh, you know, as, as social beings is so important to, to us. Is research showing that as well? Is that... Uh, a primary condition in which people start um, uh, feeling disconnected uh, or, or, you know, they might still be connected, but they feel like they're a bird and they shouldn't uh, or they, they, they don't fit in type, type of space. Is that a common theme that shows Yeah, up absolutely. The I mean, the, the three, you know, I mean, then there's various different theories of, of suicide, but certainly that, that sense of I don't belong and I'm a burden are key and there's more and more evidence now coming out around specifically around loneliness as well um, and I think that that is a really important thing that we need to start to focus on and look at and you know historically there were um, you know well-known researchers in suicide you know many many years ago that talked about a soul ache um, and I think there's a lot to be said in that to, to look, but we've kind of shifted more and more through this biomedical kind of model into this, this real mental illness space. Um, and it's probably come at the detriment to maybe looking a bit broad, more broadly at, at these other concepts and, and around loneliness and, and, and not belonging and connectedness and all of those things, because we do know that they, you know, when people do feel connected and when they have a meaning and purpose and they have um, close relationships with people, it helps to keep them safe. So, you know, and, and they're also, all, as I said, all the things that are key in resilience. So um, key factors in resilience. So I think we've just gone a little bit off track. And, and I think, you know, what's really difficult is because the way that research works and the way that funding for research works is so often on, um, you know, that quantitative um, research that shows, proves or disproves something. And when we're talking about something like suicide, it's so complex and it's so multidimensional that we're never going to get that categorical answer. 
But because we don't get that, it's very difficult to, and certainly with qualitative research and the type of research that I do, you, you know, you don't, it's not very, um, people don't want to invest money in that um, because it's like, well, what do you mean? I'm not going to come out with an answer. And, and as human beings, we like the right and the wrong. We want the black and the white. And I think that's kind of really led us down this path of black and whiteness um, in the way that we approach a lot of our research. And, um, you know, and in a way, you know, what I love about my research is it is messy. But that's human life. Human life is messy. Human experience is messy, you know, and, and suicide in particular is so complex that, you know, that, that well, there is no one answer. And there's, there's so many facets to it. And, and it's about just diving deep into all of those facets to then try and connect all those, all those bits and dots together to go, how do we approach this from a really multidimensional perspective and approach this problem? But I think we've, we've kind of been, but if you look at all the research statistics and I can't remember exactly what it was, but something like 95% of the research on suicide has been focused from a quantitative perspective. Um, and, you know, such a small amount, although it's growing, is actually looking at people's lived experiences. And we're now realising, oh, and, you know, the, the value of hearing people's stories and people's lived experiences are people that have either made an, an, a suicide attempt or have been bereaved by suicide. Um, and looking at the stories that they tell and how much value and insight there is from those stories to help direct us in, in how we better support people and, and what can we do in that space to then change our suicide prevention strategies because we're clearly missing something because we know that our suicide numbers are not going down and, and I'm sure it's, it's, you know, obviously in the context of today's world, they're going to go up and they are going up. So we need to do something different. How rapidly are they going up, uh, say, in Australia? Um, in particular, well, or is we, it kind we, of the same rate across the, you know, the, 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 the primary Western countries that you've spoken about? Um, we have, I mean, if you look at, I mean, we haven't got the stats for this year, and, and this year we, you know, we do know as far so far that, like, calls to lifeline have gone up 30% in the last, since, um, since March. Um um, you know, the statistics won't come out till next year for, for that. But, um, you know, certainly in Australia in the last five years, there's been a slow, slow increase um, from sort of high 2000 number of people per year to, to 3046 in, in 2018. So, um, and, and our levels are probably they're compar comparable with other westernized countries um you know some are slightly lower some are slightly higher but we're we're we're, we're not doing a fantastic um job of suicide prevention that's for sure mm -hmm. where to next with with suicide prevention is is this a, a campaign around educating people about being people being more aware are there uh, strategies that you would like to be to see implemented. Uh, you know, obviously you've done some great work with with with, with firefighters. Uh, if you use that as a little little uh, pilot or, or, or sample sizes, what, what what do you think is the uh, the next step that you'd like to see? You know, sort of policy wise that you know, we could consider. You know, or, or think about some more. Yeah, I mean, I think we are moving in, in, in the right direction and, and the government now has a national advisor on suicide prevention in Christine Morgan and that's a fantastic start and has, um, you know, now she, and she's been fantastic in meeting with, so my, my primary um, PhD supervisor, uh, Professor Mifamwe Maple, she um, contributes to that conversation to Christine Morgan and there's several other um, sort of world leaders in that suicide space um, that, that all contribute to that conversation to addressing the, the problem of suicide really in Australia and, and how we go around um, trying to do a better job of it um, and looking at certainly, you know, in regional areas and, and vulnerable populations. Um, and that's really important for you know, Indigenous people, the LGBTIQ community um, and first responders. So there's all, I guess for me personally, it's, you know, I understand the first responder space and, and my research is in, in firefighters and because I am a firefighter. So I do hope to use my research to build a suicide preparedness um, 
prevention and, and postvention program for firefighters. And we do know, one of the things that we know about suicide prevention strategies is they have to be targeted to specific populations. So you can't just have a, a, a general kind of suicide prevention strategies for the Australian population. So you have to have different specialised subsets for specific populations that are culturally specific to them. So whether that's for the Indigenous population or whether it's for our first responder community, um, they need to be specific to each population group. So that is a really, really important thing that each area and, and specific population has their own specific strategies um, and programs available that speak the same language, if you like. Um, and so obviously for me, I will be working that first responder space, but um, you know, also working with, I think collaboration is key and in that nobody know, has all the answers and people, there's such value in all people, different people's perspectives and knowledge and um, what we can all bring to that. But I think there's many people at the moment doing lots of really amazing work, but um, often that cohesiveness is lost in trying to bring all of that together so that we're not all working on some great individual little pockets of things but we're not quite coming together in, in that cohesive approach to make the most of the knowledge that we have. So again, it's, it's a huge problem and a huge question, but um, I hope that, you know, some of my work can contribute just that little bit um, and to working with other people to, to, you know, in their work and, and to be able to better address what's a huge problem. We'll find out more about uh... Uh, or, or be in contact with yourself or the work that you do, um, you know, where, where, where can we kind of go for your resources, next resources for suicide prevention or learning more about suicide? Uh, what, where, where would you send us to, to start with? Yeah, so I mean, my I am an ambassador for Standby Support After Suicide, um, which is a national suicide um, service that provides support to people who have been impacted or bereaved by suicide nationally and specifically in a lot of regional areas. So that's standbysupport.com.au. Um, and there's some amazing resources there. So anybody that's been Im impacted by suicide. Um, Sustain Australia has just put out a new um, You're Not Alone uh, for people who are living with people who have made, perhaps made repeated attempts at suicide to support them. Um, you know, the suicide callback service, I think, is a really underutilised service, which is manned, it's telephone service that is manned by mental health professionals, but you can speak to the same person um, up to six times. Um, and that is a service that's for people who are maybe having their own suicidal thoughts, but also people who are trying to support somebody um, or who have been bereaved by suicide. So I really recommend that as well. Um, and uh, obviously Beyond Blue as well have some incredible resources on their website. Um, and then my website is uh, tarajlal.com um, and that just um, has more about my story and I guess my book and some of the talks and the articles that I've written for magazines on, on well-being and, and that sort of thing. Um, and people can con contact me through my website. And just to uh, clarify for everyone, that's standing on my brother's. I'm not sure if you yeah. caught my microphone. Yeah, so, I was just like standing, yeah, no, sorry, I just lost you. Standing, yes. on my, standing on my brother's shoulders is the book. Yes, it is, Making Peace with Grief and Suicide. So that um, was um, just released by Watkins um, covered, oh, last week, actually. Tara, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you and, and, and gain all this you know, your, your, your insight, clearly this is something you're incredibly passionate about and, and, and well-versed in, I think, some really practical ways about looking at this complex space. It's multidimensional. Uh, there isn't a solution, but rather it's a, it's a work in progress and, and, and such important work. So you know, thank you for coming on the show and sharing and, and uh, helping all of us understand that just that little bit more as well. Um, it's certainly been... Uh, very, very useful and insightful for myself. Thank you, Nesh. It's been a pleasure to be able to talk to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources and just lastly if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team develop your experience and get into some exciting work come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out i'd love to hear from you
Thank you.